Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Uh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live... Uh, according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of God. Uh, before we uh, start, let's, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you just for the testimonies that we hear and uh, really the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I do sense that uh, in this season, you are uh, working in many ways in the, the life of our congregation. And we want to pray that you continue to breathe life into us, uh, that you would help us to see the beauty of Christ. And even as we hear from your word, uh, from this very glorious passage of Romans chapter 8, that uh, you wouldn't just simply give us a clarity of thought and mind, but that uh, the things that we think about uh, would, uh, would be thoughts that um, follow your thoughts and that these high and lofty truths that we uh, proclaim to believe in would be something that would also penetrate the deepest recesses of our souls, uh, changing us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're <coughs> we're going to look at Romans 8, and um, I know not everybody here grew up in the church, or not everybody maybe um, has read the Bible or is familiar with the Bible, uh, but at least in the Christian tradition, uh, if you talk to a lot of Christians, I think uh, a lot of Christians will say Romans 8 is one of like the most glorious chapters in the Bible, one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible. Uh, in a way, you can say it's like the emotional climax to this letter in Romans. And what it does is it highlights and emphasizes the Spirit's role in the life of the believer. And it's also a very deep chapter. So here's what I thought we would do uh, over the next, I guess, couple of weeks. Uh, you'll see after today that I will not have even scratched the surface of this passage. So I'm not sure how many weeks it'll take, but I think this is something that maybe we want to digest and look at very slowly. And a lot, there's a lot of deep theology here too. But uh, from a big picture perspective, uh, as we digest and receive what Romans chapter 8 says, to also recognize and see and highlight the role of the Spirit uh, as Paul presents it here, and especially as it comes to the climax of what it means to, to be a Christian believer. Now, <clears throat> this week, in preparation for the sermon, uh, I, went, I went back and I started reading this Puritan theologian named John Owen. And uh, John Owen, he's like this brilliant theologian, but he's also like really difficult to read. And there's this book that he wrote called The Mortification of Sin that I, it's, it's, it's the only book that 
I'll try to reread over and over again. One of the reasons why personally I like to reread that book is it's a great reminder to be vigilant in uh, putting sin to death and fighting sin. Uh, and I actually made the mistake. I was like uh, meeting with um, a brother and he, you know, he wanted to grow and things like that. I, I made the mistake. I said, hey, let's read some John Owen together. <laughs> and, I, and I gave him the book Mortification of Sin. He's like, oh, this is really hard to, to read. I was like, yeah, my mistake. I shouldn't have given you that book. Uh, but John Owen is a very brilliant theologian because he dives into a lot of like complex theological topics. Um, but you can also tell he, he's a pastor because he's trying to treat these complex theological topics with, uh, with a pastoral heart. And so, for example, uh, one of the things he talks about is um, how do you understand right, the call to put to sin to death, that exhortation, uh, along with the idea that uh, it's the entirely a work of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, we would say uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that puts sin to death. On the other hand, there's a clear exhortation that uh, we are to put sin to death. So those kind of complex things that I think maybe uh, if you've thought about it long enough uh, and maybe you've been confused by, uh, those are some of the things that he talks about. Uh, but this week, I was like, let me, let me read a little bit of John Owen again. And I was looking at some of the things that John Owen wrote, and I was actually really surprised by uh, w- where he places the uh, importance and significance on personal experience of the believer. Uh, you would think he's this like, high-minded, uh, brilliant theologian, very academic, but uh, I guess you can see that he, he really lived the Christian life, and especially in his uh, pastoral ministry, and uh, I'm going to paraphrase something that he said because, you know, his writing style is a little bit old. Uh, but he basically says this. He says, I would rather be among those who, in their love and affection for Christ, do some irregular and excessive things as a way of expressing their love than be among those professing themselves to be Christians, almost disavow having any emotional affections for the person of Christ. And when I read that, I thought, oh, Things haven't changed. Things don't really change in history because I guess you know in the 17th century, people who had this like exuberant love and affection for Christ, I guess they did some strange things, right? And John Owen is saying, I would rather be with those people who uh, show their affection for Christ and do kind of some irregular, strange things, uh, than the people who maybe profess themselves to be Christian are completely dignified, maybe the intellectual type who can recite good doctrine, and yet don't seem to have any. A deep, personal, effective, spiritual experience with the love of Christ. And so out of that, he writes a book on communing with the Trinity, and he has a section talking about why it's really important to commune with the person of the Holy Spirit, because when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, one of the things he does is he convicts our hearts, he shows us the beauty of Christ, and he gives us the deepest affections and awakens those to God. And that, that experience, that personal spiritual experience, John Owen is saying, is very significant when it comes to the life of a believer. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound like a strong statement, but uh, I think it's true. I don't believe, I don't think you can have any sort of real assurance as a believer without having a, any kind of personal experience with God. Now, what that experience looks like, will differ from person to person, but at the end of the day, you need to have a personal experience with God and the love of Christ. And I think that's the only way you will have true conviction on not only the reality of who God is, but also the goodness of who God is, the sweetness of his love, the goodness of his character, and the power of his spirit. The word tells it to us, the spirit illumines the word and makes the truths of the Bible 
real for us, experiential for us. Without experiencing God, I think what uh, the Christian life looks like is you, you constantly have doubts, and uh, you say, is God there? Is God good? Is God powerful? And these kind of things come to your mind. And I think eventually what that leads to is you, you sort of have these uh, either an apathetic attitude towards God and kind of half in, half out, because you're not sure, or uh, maybe sometimes those doubts will eventually lead you to a place of um, unbelief and saying, I, I don't believe in this stuff anymore. Now, when it comes to experience, uh, you can't rely on maybe intellectual assent. You can't think your way to having an experience, right? Even on a, on a human secular level. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, if you've ever gone to a concert or, or seen a band perform, there, there's an experience there that you experience that you, you can't really, like, uh, convey by just telling about it. My sister, a long time ago, went to a U2 concert, and she had really good seats, so she was, like, right in the front. She wasn't even, she's not even a huge fan of U2, but a, f- a friend was a huge fan of U2, had tickets, so right in, in the front. The last concert I went to was a Muse concert, and I was, like, all the way in <laughs> the top, and it didn't feel the same. Uh, but <clears throat> my sister, she went to this U2 concert, and I guess from, right, from the front from there, and you can, like, kind of see the band, and everybody around you is, like, super into uh, the band, and they know all the words to all the songs. And she came back, and she told me, she's like, that, that felt like a worship experience. Uh, and I was like, what do you mean? She's like, everybody's like raising their hands. Everybody's screaming. Everybody is like singing along to the songs. And you could just experience, you could just feel the, the energy of that concert. And she's like telling me about it. I'm like, oh, you know, that's cool. But I wasn't there, right? I didn't experience it at all. So there's, there's always going to be a gap in terms of what she experienced and what I know of that experience because it's just simply a transfer of information. You can say the same things about maybe a sporting event. You can say the same kind of things about a restaurant. Uh, You can even say the same things about, let's say, a Christian experience, like going on a a mission trip or the summer prayer march. If you talk to anybody who went on this summer prayer march this past summer, they can tell you about it, but I guarantee you that their experience of it uh, you will not fully understand the magnitude or the impact that it had upon them because you just weren't there to experience it. That's what experience is like. There are some things in life, or I, c- I would say experiences in general, that you can't simply just convey with uh, words and information and say it was like this and it felt like this because there's always going to be a gap. And the thing about an experience is you're, in a sense, always going to be like a, a passive recipient of it. So if you go to this concert uh, you're, you're just there and something is happening and you're just kind of receiving the experience of it. Although there is an active part in terms of you can take steps to buying a ticket, take steps towards driving to the concert venue and going to your seat, but at the end of the day, you, you sit there and you receive the experience. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Now, we can take steps to I- invite the Holy Spirit, and we can take steps to um, you know, be in his presence. We come to church, and we worship together, and we sing, and those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, to ex- have this personal experience of who God is, of his presence, it has to be wholly the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us that experience and connects uh, what we believe in our minds to be the truth of God to uh, our hearts, to our souls, to our entire bodies in terms of the experience of God. And I think all people, especially in this kind of cultural climate that we're living in, everybody's looking for something that's true. Everybody is looking for something that is authentic. And one of the biggest turnoffs to people, especially when it comes to Christianity, is something that's manufactured, right? 
That's what people are looking for. They want to know that what you believe is authentic to you, that you're not just kind of outwardly acting in a certain way because you think that's what a good Christian is supposed to do. Uh, but probably the one of the most impactful things that you can do as a Christian believer is just be authentically a Christian believer. And in your experience of God, um, you know, we can see, uh, we can't see with our physical eyes, uh, but when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then it gives us a new set of eyes and we can see spiritual realities. I think that's a little bit about of what Romans chapter 8 is talking about when it talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, as I said, this, this is like such a deep chapter and uh, I wasn't quite sure like how much to talk about and where to go from here uh, because the theology is so rich. I didn't want this to sound like dry and academic. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But, uh, you know, if you remember, we were, we're doing these testimonies on Sundays, and a couple of weeks ago, Mike Chung, uh, he read from a passage from Ezekiel 37 where God says this. God says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ezekiel 37, there's this like vision, um, very Halloween-like, very eerie vision, where you have like these dry bones, and these dry bones have no life. But when the breath of God comes and enters these dry bones, uh, they are raised to life. They are, they are given life. And, of course, a historical situation in Ezekiel is that this is a nation in exile, and so they're, they're kind of experiencing like a spiritual death in exile. Their temple is destroyed. They, they can't worship. The, uh, God is not with them in the form of, of this temple. Uh, and according to Second Kings and other places, the reason why they're in exile is not because of uh, a political situation. It's not because of economic reasons. It's not because uh, they had a weak military. At the end of the day, the reason why they are in this position of exile is a spiritual reason. They sinned against God by turning to idols, and as a result of that, they were exiled, sent out of Jerusalem, conquered by a foreign nation. And I think what stands out in this scene in Ezekiel is uh, the message there is not uh, repent and turn to the Lord. And that's, that's a very frequent message from the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, they can't even do that because they're dead, right? They're dry bones, and dry bones can't do anything. And it has to be wholly the work of God breathing life into them. And that's, that's the thrust of the vision, that God is going to breathe life and breath into them. Now, when Mike read from Ezekiel 37 that day, um, I, I like remembered something from like 10 years ago in seminary when I was like learning Hebrew and things. I, I even texted Mike about it. Uh, you know, in Hebrew, you know the word for uh, spirit and the word for breath and the word for wind? They're the same Hebrew word, right? It's a word ruach. Uh, it's an onomatopoeia. Do you remember what an onomatopoeia is? Onomatopoeia is, a, is like a word that sounds like, um, it looks like the word uh, it's a word that looks like the sound is trying to make. So when we were praying before, Nicholas, he went, right, he went, bam. <laughs> or what do you say? Boom. Right, that's an onomatopoeia. Uh, in Hebrew, ruach is kind of like an onomatopoeia because you can, you can kind of hear it when you say it. There's like breath coming out, right? <sighs> right, ruach. And uh, translators, the way they try to determine the, how to translate a certain word into English, they look at the context and they say, okay, uh, this is a Hebrew word. It could mean right, wind, it can mean spirit, it can mean breath, 
Uh, let's look at the context and let's look at how to translate it. But if you think about it, if you're an Israelite and Hebrew is like your native language, uh, you're not really making the same kind of distinctions that you make when you have to translate it into another language. And so in that passage, it says like God's going to breathe, right? Put breath into these dry bones and it could very easily be understood as a spirit. Uh, and that language in Ezekiel 37 is like very similar to Genesis 2. And if you remember in Genesis 2, when God creates man, do you know what he does? He breathes, right? He breathes breath into the nostrils of man and man comes alive. The themes are very similar. And in Ezekiel 37, they are dead because of their sin. And therefore, they were living uh, out God's righteous condemnation upon them. There's no temple. There's no glory. There's no presence of God. And therefore, there is no life because of their sin. And the prophecy of Ezekiel is basically pointing to a day and saying, one day God is going to breathe life into you. One day God's going to breathe spirit into you. And uh, when that happens, you will have life again. I think what Paul is talking about here is, is in a way the fulfillment of that prophecy from Ezekiel 37 uh, when it talks about the indwelling spirit of God. Look at Romans chapter 8, and right from the start, Paul says this. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think I have to read that again, and I, I want you to pay attention. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in itself is quite a remarkable statement. You know, even uh, on an experiential level, I think condemnation, feeling condemned, is somewhat the norm for many of us. Uh, we condemn ourselves because we uh, failed to achieve something. We condemn ourselves because we made a mistake. Or other people condemn us because we failed to achieve something. Or other people condemn us because uh, we made a mistake. And when those mistakes are uh, directed towards God and are about breaking God's holy law, and when that failure is a failure to achieve perfect righteousness, then condemnation is actually something you would expect from God but Paul says here, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Oh, that's, that's a hard uh, verse, actually. I had to read like four or five commentaries on that verse. Uh, Paul, I think he's being ironic here when he uses the word law, because he's not, I don't think he's talking about some kind of written code of law, but I think he's using law in the sense of uh, authority or power. And he's saying this, that the authority or the power of the spirit has set you free from the authority and the power of sin and death. And uh, here's where we're gonna enter into a little bit of a complex theology that John Owens writes about. But uh, I think many of us probably had certain kind of questions in terms of how do we relate to sin? If we're a Christian, how do we understand what sin is and how do we relate to it? A um, long time ago when I was in seminary, uh, I was speaking at a college retreat. Now, because I'm in seminary, right, I, I haven't done a lot of like preaching for uh, other people uh, and you know, I was kind of new at it. And I was, I was a speaker, but then they also invited another person to come and kind of give a seminar. And I decided, let me sit in on the seminar and uh, just like receive and listen to what this person is saying. So the person is giving a seminar. He didn't know that I was a speaker at the retreat, right? And <coughs> he, he's giving a seminar. He, he calls on me. <laughs> he says, are you a sinner? And I go, yeah, I th I'm, I'm a sinner. Right? He calls on somebody else. Are you a sinner? 
And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. And then he says, uh, all of you said you're a sinner. You're wrong. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, oh, shoot. I could feel the eyes looking at me. It's like, oh, that's, that's the guy that's speaking for us. He's being called out as being wrong. And, you know, it's like a, it's a little bit, like, awkward and a little bit embarrassing. And, uh, you know, uh, and taunt, they, they all were, like, so confused by that, right, by what he said. So after he gives a seminar, I, they, they're, like, lining up to me, and they're like, what is he talking about? Why is he saying, like, we're not a, a sinner anymore? And, you know, I, I, I think I understood what this guy was trying to say. Uh, I think maybe he just presented it in a little bit of a confusing way, but I think he was trying to say this. You know, because of uh, the work of Christ, because of what Jesus did upon the cross, because of what he accomplished on the cross, we have been justified, which is Paul's language in Romans, which basically means this, we have been declared to be righteous. We are accepted before him. That is our status before God, and therefore... We are no longer sinners in the sense of our status before God is not that of sinner. Our status before God is one who is accepted. We are righteous and we are welcomed and we are a child of God solely because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul in verse 1 can say something like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in God's eyes, from a status perspective, he no longer sees us as sinners. At the same time, though, there is a sense in which uh, you can answer that in the affirmative and say, yeah, I am a sinner, right? Uh, because we all struggle with sin. I am battling sin every single day, which is why I need to read John Owen's book every couple of years. I struggle with fear. I struggle with anger. Um, I'm self-centered. I am self-dependent, I have pride in my heart, I have envy in my heart, there's unbelief in my heart, sometimes I have bitterness and unforgiveness, and uh, so many more things, like so much junk in my heart. And uh, if you need confirmation, I'm not just trying to be falsely humble, if you want confirmation, just ask my wife, and she will gladly tell you, yes, he's a sinner. I can be condescending, I can be judgmental, I can uh, be lacking in gentleness. So in what sense is Paul saying we are free from the law of sin and death? How are you supposed to understand your relationship? How are we supposed to understand our relationship with sin? I think we can say this. On the one hand, sin is a present reality in our lives. Death is a present reality in our lives. Uh, we see how our sin manifests itself. We, uh, we have to encounter death all the time, and we see how that manifests itself. But even though it's a present reality in our lives, sin is no longer a power over our lives. It's no longer a power over us. And that is the distinction. Sin is a presence, but it is not a power. Uh, let me try to um, flesh that out a little bit. You know, this week I went hiking. And <laughs> when I went home, uh, I, you know, I put my shirt on uh, this chair that we have, like this like, little sofa chair. And then I had to leave right away and go into the city because I had a staff meeting. And uh, during the staff meeting, all of a sudden, I'm with Mike and I'm with uh, Natalia, the children's director. I just feel like my, my watch, right? It keeps buzzing over and over again. I'm like, what is going on? And uh, I look at my phone and my wife is like sending me all these texts. And she's like, I found a tick, right? <laughs> uh, does any of you use like that? Uh, angry emoji with like the cursing on the mouth. <laughs> right, I got so many of those emojis. <laughs> and I'm like, 
you know, the last time I, my wife was like this angry with me was when I um, accidentally left the, the mini fridge open with all the frozen breast milk and like half of it melted. Yeah, I'm lucky to be alive. <laughs> but she was, she was like super upset that there was a tick. So, uh, you know, like trying to talk and then, sh- and then she starts calling me like over and over. I ignore it the first time and then she calls again. I'm like, oh man, I gotta pick this up, right? I'm like, hello. She's like, I am not happy. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Actually, I didn't say I'm sorry. I'm like, I didn't do it on purpose. That's what I said. <laughs> I didn't bring it home on purpose. It's like, what did you wear today? I got I to gotta put it, I got to wash it and put it in the dryer and make sure if there's any ticks on it, it, it dies, right? So anyway, uh, that happened and uh, I go home. I don't know why it didn't occur to me to like check my body. So later that night, I'm like, I should check my body. So, you know, I take off my clothes and I'm looking at my body and lo and behold, there's like a tick right in my arm lodged in my arm and uh, I'm like uh, I was like oh what is this now I've never been bit by a tick before I don't know like what the right protocol is I found all this stuff out after after I looked it up on Google I did everything wrong but anyway I, I, I was like oh let me take this out and I thought it would just kind of brush off but no it's like lodged into your arm so I'm like all right let me get my fingers and like try to pull it out it's not coming out let me use a little bit more strength I go bah, and pull it out and then I take the tick, put it in the toilet, flush it down the toilet. And I'm like, oh, man, I hope I don't have Lyme disease, right? So I, I go on Google, and I'm like, all right, what do you do if you're bitten by a tick? And they all say, don't take it out with your fingers. <laughs> they say, get tweezers, right, and very gently pull it out because you don't want to crush the tick because then I guess all the bacteria and stuff can, like, go into your arm. And then they say, uh, and save the tick and put it in like a little jar and get it tested for Lyme disease. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> right? So anyway, I, I hope I don't have Lyme disease, um, but I guess I might, right? Now here's the thing. Uh, you know, I would rather not have gotten bit by a tick, but it helps in this illustration. <laughs> when, when Jesus dies on the cross, uh, what he does to sin is, is kind of like he takes a tick and he removes it from your body, right? But the thing is, like, you know, you still might have a disease. That you still might have Lyme disease and the, the presence of uh, what that tick can do to you is, is kind of still present in your body. And that's why, you know, you have to take antibiotics in order to continually, like, kill that disease and, and get better and things like that. Uh, I think in that sense, that's why Paul is saying that there's now no condemnation, that we have been set free from the law of sin and death, that it no longer has power over us because in Christ, when Jesus died upon the cross, he took that tick, he got rid of it. He doesn't see us now with a, as a body with a, a person that has a tick on it. He sees us like a, as a person without a tick on it. But in the present reality of where we live now, prior to being resurrected and prior to being glorified and all those kinds of things, there is still a presence of sin within us that we wrestle with and that we have to struggle with. Uh, Just like the disease, we might have some pain, we might have some discomfort, but when there's powerful antibiotics that dwells within us, there is another power within us that can help us destroy the disease and restore us and make us healthy again. That's what the Holy Spirit can do when the Holy Spirit dwells within us. By his power, and this is why John Owen is saying it's holy the work of the Holy Spirit that we can even fight sin and put sin to death. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, sin can be put to death. Now, I think uh, 
you know, because some of this is complex theology, I, I do think maybe we, we fall into uh, one of two errors. We, we either say this, uh, we either say, great, Jesus died for the cross. We are no longer sinners anymore. Uh, and therefore, you know, it doesn't matter what I do and uh, I'll always be forgiven by Christ. And uh, then we don't like put any effort into saying I need to fight sin. And that's actually what Paul addresses in Romans 2 in chapter 6, 15. He says, uh, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit because when we set our minds on spiritual things, uh, I think we do get a better sense of who we are supposed to be uh, as restored into the image of uh, our glorious Christ. That's something that we saw in last week's passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. On the other hand, we don't want to walk around in life kind of feeling condemned by our sin because what that does is that ignores the powerful work of Christ. And, you know, you see sometimes a lot of Christians do that too, and it's kind of like, oh, I'm not passionate enough. Oh, uh, I'm st- I can't believe I'm still s- struggling with this sin after 15 years, after 20 years. And you, you kind of just walk around saying, oh, I'm, I'm the most unworthy person ever. I don't think that's the right attitude to have either because what Paul says in the very first verse, there is now no more condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit. By the way, think about this. Um, we're not going to look at this too deeply today, but Paul says that it's, it's the same Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That It's the same Spirit that dwells within us. That means like every, every power that Jesus himself had access to, that very same power that raised him from the dead, that same spirit lives within us. And I think we should at least have that kind of power accessible to us, not in of ourselves, but by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, you can kind of see, right, if you go to one extreme end and you say, oh, I'm condemned all the time, but then if you go to the other extreme end and you say, well, I'm not a sinner, right, I can do whatever I want, I don't have to fight sin, right, you can see, like, the tension in that, right? It's like, what do we do? Where do we go? And I don't know if this is the right answer, but uh, I guess this is the best way I think about it. Uh, You know, we have a five-year-old, and I think she's kind of a great politician uh, because my wife and I, you know, we get a little bit competitive, but we're just, like, messing with each other. And, you know, at her age, she doesn't understand the nuances of our humor when we (laughs) mess with each other, so she takes everything very uh, authentically and sincerely. And so uh, this is just an example I just made up, but it would be like if we both made chili, right? My wife has her recipe of chili. I have my recipe of chili. And I'll just be like, so whose chili is better, mommy or daddy's chili? Daddy's chili is better, right? And she's such a politician because she she won't choose. And she'll kind of be like, well, yeah, your chili is good, but, you know, mommy's chili was, like, really good too. I liked her chili. Uh, But I was like, and then my wife would be like, yeah. And then she's like, but, you know, Dad, your chili is good too, right? So she's like a politician kind of towing the line and going back and forth. Uh, I kind of think maybe in the tension of the Bible, I hope, I hope this is okay theologically, right? <laughs> I think in the tension of the Bible, maybe it's like kind of supposed to be like this back and forth little dance. So on the one hand, we, we want to be in a place where we want to say, there is now no condemnation for me. I am not condemned because of the work of Christ, and I want to rejoice in that. And then, but kind of go on the other end. I need to be vigilant in mortifying the sins of the flesh and putting sin to death. 
and then go on the other line. But it's not me that is putting sin to death. It's the indwelling spirit that gives me power and ability to put sin to death, right? And you kind of just kind of go back and forth and toe that line. I wonder maybe if that's what it's supposed to feel like in the Christian life in terms of living in that tension. And I think as, as we do that, one of the things that will happen as we focus less upon like what we're doing and more upon what God is doing and what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection and what the Holy Spirit is continually doing within us as he dwells in our hearts, uh, I think one of the things we are going to see is I think we're going to think a little bit differently. Our minds right, will be shaped on spiritual things, and that is going to give us so much life and peace. And that's where I want to conclude today, kind of bringing it back full circle. One of the things Paul says, right, about the Spirit is the Spirit gives life and peace. One of the things that Ezekiel prophesied is life. When the breath of God, when the Spirit of God fills us, we as dry bones, we experience life. We feel alive again. I cannot tell you how many people that I talk to, even Christian believers who kind of have this sense of like, uh, life isn't good, right? Have this sense of everything is too hard. Uh, have this sense of like, I feel lost. Uh, there's no peace. My heart is filled with anxiety. And I think to a degree, that's always going to be a reality to a certain extent because sin is present. But I also think what we have access to in the person of the Holy Spirit is we don't have to stay there and remain there. But the work of the Spirit as he fills us is going to help us to experience life and peace that transcends all of our understanding, that transcends our present experience. And the Spirit of God will give us spiritual eyes to see spiritual realities and spiritual truths and make the death and resurrection of Christ a powerful, wonderful, beautiful reality to us. And that's when we'll experience the grace and the love of Christ. Now, a lot of people like Romans 8 because of what it says at the end of this chapter where Paul talks about, right, no height nor depth will separate me from the love of God. And you read that passage and it's kind of like you feel the emotion that Paul is uh, feeling as he kind of talks about uh, the love of Christ. And I think because the Spirit dwells within us, that, that is going to be our potential natural climax. We feel so convicted about the love of Christ. We feel so touched by the love of Christ that, in a sense, we feel like we're more than conquerors, which is the phrase Paul uses. We are more than conquerors because Jesus Christ conquered sin once for all because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us power Let's pray together.